left fielders. Welcome to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast. We are building a community of investors who are interested in acquiring real assets that produce real cash flow. Our community is focused on networking and education to help people invest passively and think differently. Let's go. Most people will say, oh, you know, I want to be a real estate investor because I want financial independence. I want passive income. When in reality, what they tend to want is some level of time freedom or geographical freedom. So when you sit there and have a conversation with them and say, I want to do this so you know I can leave my W-2 and then do what I want when I want. Okay, that's great. But I'm telling you right now, managing fix and flip projects, you're going to be running to Home Depot eight times a day in between different properties, yelling at contractors. The other options aren't presented to what I would consider, you know, frontline new investors. That's the only two things they see because that's what's on television. They're never going to make a show about private lending because all we're doing is looking at spreadsheets and signing documentation. It's not sexy enough. That's coming right up. But first, I want to introduce TribeVest, our show sponsor. I have Travis Smith here, the founder and CEO. Travis, you know I'm a fan of your platform and I'm a member in four different tribes. In fact, I like the platform so much, I'm also an investor. Can you share some of the ways you think TribeVest can help build wealth for passive investors? Thanks, Jim. Well, as you know, we've built a platform that empowers people to easily and safely form investor tribes. If you're a part of an investor tribe, you can participate in deals that maybe you wouldn't or couldn't on your own. And I think that's why TribeVest is so popular amongst passive investors. Think about it. Deals start at 25,000, but I've seen investment minimums as high as 100 or even $200,000. And I don't care who you are. Those are big checks to be writing as a solo investor. But as a tribe, each member can drastically lower their capital requirement and spread the risk on the deal. Or another way to look at it is, where maybe as a solo investor, you might invest in one deal, but with your tribe, you could invest in five, maybe 10 deals. You can think of tribe investing as a wealth building experience with the people you know, like, and trust. If there are left fielders who are interested in learning more, please have them check out tribevest.com or reach out to me directly. Jim. We are thrilled to be a part of Passive Investing from Left Field and excited to listen to your interview with this week's guest. You are listening to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast, powered by TribeVest. The mission of Left Field Investors is to build a community of like-minded individuals interested in creating financial freedom through passively investing in real assets that generate real cash flow. In this podcast, Jim Piper will interview passive investors, syndicators, and others who will share their journey with a focus on helping the passive real estate investor learn and become part of the left field community. This is Jeremy Roll, and you're listening to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast. I'm very pleased today to have Alex Brashears with me. She's a private money lender, syndication investor, community builder, and, and much more. She started a private lending company, Infinite Road Investments, which funds first and second uh, position loans on residential property. She also runs a Facebook group called Private Lending Lessons, which offers education for people looking to get into lending. She um, is also the, the fund investor relations manager for Mission First Capital, which is a company dedicated to providing real estate investment opportunities to active duty and veteran military personnel, which I think is fantastic. And she's deep into education, 
Networking, which is uh, you know one of the one of the missions for Left Field Investors. So we're glad to have you here, Alex. Welcome to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast. Thank you, Jim. Thank you for having me. Well, the way we like to start here is if you could just tell your journey a little bit, because I know a little bit about you and it's super interesting. You move around a lot with the military and, and you've started some groups that help military. And, and so if you can just kind of tell your story a little bit, including obviously how you got into uh, real estate. Absolutely. So I am a military spouse for the last 20 years. So we have done our time. I'm currently sitting in my 19th address in 20 years. So I'm an expert at packing and unpacking. We'll put it that way. But what that also kind of leads to is it makes it very hard to have any sort of career, like much less something you can build upon from place to place. Because if you're only living somewhere, you know, three months, six months, you know, the longest we've lived anywhere uh, is 22 months in the last 20 years. So obviously, anybody that's involved in real estate, you know, it's a relatively slow moving asset. It's not like stocks where you just log in one morning, buy some stock, sell it later that afternoon, hopefully make a little bit of money. That's just, that's not how real estate operates. So we knew the quote unquote traditional ways of real estate investing, the, the things that most people think about, you know, the HGTV shows where they buy a really ugly house and they put farmhouse sinks into it. Or, you know, somebody that's a landlord, you know, they're, they have a house they just moved out of and they got something bigger because now they have kids or family. And that just never really suited us as our lifestyle. Because the idea of being a landlord from 2,000 miles away was never attractive. We did do it. We regret it. We will never do it again. We did do a fix and flip again. Same thing. Because when you're first starting out in real estate investing, it's almost like that's the only two things that are offered to you as options. You're either going to be a fix and flipper or you're going to be a landlord. There's nothing else. I call it real estate hazing. So once you've done one or both of those things, and you're just kind of like, oh my God, you know, there's got to be something else. And it's like these doors open up to this buffet of all these other options of which, you know, syndication and passive investing and private lending are on that buffet. So it's almost like, you know, they put all the like rolls and the fried rice at the very beginning. And then you figure out there's crab legs and shrimp at the end after your plate is full. That's what I feel like we do in real estate to people. So I want to get out there and talk to people, especially uh, women investors, because a lot of times being an active investor is basically buying yourself another full-time job. And a lot of women, especially with COVID, you know, they might be working from home. They have kids doing school from home. Their spouse might also be working from home. And it's just, it's, it's a circus. So the last thing they want to do is go and uh, intentionally buy another circus that they're going to have to go and deal with. So I think that private lending and passive investing really speaks to that crowd really well too. Yeah, that's fantastic. You know, I, I started out accidental landlord. That was my path. You know, I did not like it. Then I found a property manager to do it for me. That didn't work. We did a flip and I joke, but it's true. We made hundreds of dollars on our flip and that's not what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to make tens of thousands. You know, then I thought, well, let's get into multifamily. I mean, I've done it all as far as active and I finally stumbled into this passive stuff. And this is what I like. And like you mentioned, you know, I do private lending and, and syndications as well. So it's really interesting. Can you tell me a little bit about the flip and the landlord experience? What were, how did you get into that? Like, how did you decide, oh, this is what I want to do? And then what made you say, okay, this isn't what I want to do, but I still want to be in real estate? Like a lot of people, you know, I wandered into a local RIA meeting where we happened to be stationed at the time. And like I mentioned, you know, as soon as somebody realizes you're new, any definition of real estate investing is usually centered around those two ways of investing. 
So you just kind of do what the herd does because you deem these people successful. You know, they're real estate investors. So, you know, they're successful. So just do what they do. I think kind of the one of the major missteps a lot of new people experience in real estate investing that I know myself, I personally experienced was I never sat down and had a conversation with myself, my spouse or anyone else to decide what my lifestyle was, what my skills were, what my personality likes and dislikes were, and then actively sought out a way to invest that worked with all of those things. So for example, when, you know, when you're at the RIA meeting, you're all excited and this wholesaler has a deal and you really like the deal, you're like, all right, yeah, yeah, let's do this. Like, this is awesome. I went to a RIA meeting and I found a flip. You know, you, you think you made it. You get into it. I don't have children. I don't like children. So the idea of like having to babysit another human being is just terrible to me. But anybody who's ever done a flip, you are babysitting human beings all the time. <laughs> so, yes, you are. So I was like, no, no, we're not doing this. So after the first one, we were like, no, no, not doing this ever again. So again, still attending the RIA meeting, still bumping into investors, and a lot of fix and flips also tend to have rentals. So again, I'm in that community of people that have rentals. And while I, what I'm hearing isn't 100% positive, I was sold on that idea that, you know, hey, you know, you're building legacy wealth through equity. And this was pre-2008. So you're building the house you're renting now, you know, next year is going to be twenty or $30,000 more. And you can just basically treat it as your own little piggy bank and refi, pull some cash out. Da, 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 da. And again, in theory, sounds fantastic until you get in there and then, you know, your property manager didn't properly screen the tenant and then they start taking apart things or they rip up all the flooring out of your house or they take all the baseboards out of your house or they refuse to change an air filter over 12 months. But it's just... All these things, I think the quote unquote boot camps and gurus don't necessarily prepare you for. So again, a lot of babysitting human beings. And I was like, no, no, not doing this. No, this is not fun either. And then during all of this, again, going back to showing up to these RIA meetings, I just happened to meet someone who was a hard money lender, private lender. We just got talking and I was in college at the time. And, uh, he's like, so you're a science major. I'm like, yeah. He goes, you must be good with numbers. And I'm like, yeah, I'm pretty good. I'm in Calc 3 now. And uh, he's like, well, have you ever thought about doing loan broker? And I was like, no, honestly, never crossed my mind. And so he explained a little bit about it. And then he said, like, the best thing every college student wants to hear, you can work your own hours. <laughs> so I was like, okay, awesome. You're going to not make me sit in an office. You're going to let me work when I want to. And I'm going to get paid for this. Yeah, sure. Let's do this. And since it was a small office, I oftentimes did like the books for the business. So, you know, I, back, this is way back when, 20 years ago. You know, so when the checks would come in through snail mail, this is back before Venmo and smartphones were a thing. You know, I was the person literally putting the checks into the accounts, you know, putting the deposit into the bank, like all of these things. So I got to see real estate kind of behind the curtain from the money side of the table, as opposed to the active investor side of the table. And something I noticed during all of this, you know, because obviously I'm also taking phone calls in the office when I'm there. And I'm hearing these stories from the active investors. Hey, my payment's going to be a little late because X, Y, Z reason. And it just kind of occurred to me like, okay, no matter what happened, they had to pay the mortgage. You know, they were calling this guy going, they understood that they had to pay the mortgage and they were trying to stay out of hot water, but no matter what. So, you know, if the tenant moves in and gave you first, last and security deposit, but then hasn't paid anything since then, you still have to pay the mortgage. You know, contractor runs off with your deposit never ordered supplies, can, will not return a phone call, you still have to pay the mortgage. So when I've started processing all of this, I'm like, okay, you know, this, 
private lender and hard money lender, you know, he's cashing checks anywhere between $700 and $2,200 every single month, depending on what the loan is. There's not a lot of overhead, you know, when you're doing private lending. So a lot of that is capital that he's keeping, you know, income that he's keeping. And I'm watching the landlord group. They basically do this process of they hope the tenant pays when the tenant pays. And then they kind of keep their fingers crossed and hope nothing breaks for 30 days so they can collect their 100 maybe $150 a month. And then as soon as the first rolls around, it's that whole gamut all over again. And I was just like, okay, one of these things doesn't belong. And I like that option. So that's what I'm going to pursue. And that was always something kind of bubbling in the back of my mind, you know, as we moved. And now, especially with COVID, COVID has ushered in such an ability to invest remotely just because we have the technology to do it now. So I was just like, okay, I always knew this was going to be our path into investing in real estate because I was not going to be a landlord and I was not going to be a fix and flipper. So can you talk a little bit about hard money loans versus private money? Because a lot of people hear both of those terms and I think some people interchange them. And I know there's, there's some differences depending on who you talk to. So can you, can you just define those for us? Yes. And that's a great question. And I'm glad you brought it up. So in my opinion, the way I use private money is that it is a personal investor's capital that it's either their own capital or capital they have direct control over. So that could be, you know, they've pooled money with friends and family, you know, something you're talking to the decision maker when you're talking to a true private lender. I'm the underwriter. I'm the processor. I'm the decision maker. I'm the one calling the bank to wire the funds to your closing. Now, a hard money lender, basically the funds are not theirs. They don't have a whole lot of control, if any, of where that capital goes. So for example, the hard money lenders might be backed by a warehouse line of credit at a big bank, maybe a hedge fund out of New York, you know, whatever the situation happens to be. So when you talk to them, you are not talking to the decision maker. So basically what they have is a business plan that they sold this hedge fund, for example, that says we are only going to lend on these types of properties with borrowers above a 680 at this max LTV, da 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 like, And if you don't check all those boxes, they can't do that loan because they have they have legal agreements put in place that says this is how we shall use your money, Mr. Bank, Mr. Hedge Fund, whatever that is. So it sounds like a small difference, but when you get further downstream as an active investor, it makes a huge difference because private lending can be much more collaborative and much more flexible. Whereas hard money lending, you know, it's call up, hey, what's your rates? Whereas in private lending, that is the worst thing to do to a private lender is call them up and ask them what the rates are, because that's just not how it works with private lending. Why? What, what does that mean? That's not how it works with private lending. Can you explain a little bit about that? Sure. So private lending tends to be much more of a relationship dynamic. So it's going to be someone, first off, most private lenders lend only in their local market or maybe a market, you know, one or two markets that they're intimately familiar with if they don't live there. So if I have someone contact me out of Idaho and say, hey, you know, I want to buy this rancher, you know, fix and flip out in Idaho. I'm like, that's great. But I only fund loans in Hampton Roads, Virginia. So most private lenders tend to be very, very small in market and scope. And that's due to a couple of reasons. So first off, it's probably going to be a limitation of capital because most private lenders tend not to be very liquid. They have to wait for one loan to come in to be able to go out and issue another loan. You know, sometimes that's the case more often than not, I would say that's the case. The second thing that kind of limits what private lenders can do is going to be the laws associated with lending. So there are laws associated with being able to actually originate that loan that are different in every state. 
some states, you actually need a mortgage broker's license to lend out your own money. And then other places, the other factor is something called usury laws. And that dictates the upper limits for what you can lend, you know, how you can lend it, which bucket does it fit in? Is it my LLC lending to another LLC? They consider that a commercial loan. So that's a completely different set of, you know, documents and requirements versus me as an individual lending money to somebody to buy a house that they're going to live in. That's a completely different scenario when it comes to lending. So I think most private lenders will only lend usually within the same state, but usually within a market because of that, because they know the foreclosure process. If something goes wrong, their docs are probably written up to be that state specific or that market specific. So we don't have that huge national, like the first thing you can see that somebody's not a true private lender is if they start saying something like they're licensed in all 50 states, because there's just no real way that a true private lender in my eyes, what I define a private lender as, is going to go through the process of getting you know approval in all 50 states. They're likely not going to have that level of capital to make it worth their while to be approved in all 50 states. So there's there are, in my opinion, companies that are truly structured as a hard money lender, but they run around and call themselves private money, you know, maybe because they're pooling capital, maybe they're a debt fund or something. So they're like, oh, it's private money, you know, it's coming from individuals that it's run exactly like a hard money lender business when you look at their business model. So if you are lending out as a private lender, you know, when I first did it, I would just, I was doing it with people that I know, like, and trust, you know, that mm-hmm. makes it a lot easier. I didn't want to spend the money on an attorney to get documents. So I would use somebody else's documents. And and then I, I eventually found out that the way to do it is just to spend the money. And often you can get the the person that you're lending to to pay for your own attorney to generate the documents. Can, so can you talk about that, what the process is and what what the best practices are as far as the working with an attorney? Or can you just get out a napkin and write an IOU? That really depends on your risk tolerance. I'm not writing it on a napkin <laughs> IOU, but I am a big advocate for making sure that the documents are as correct as they can be, because that's essentially what you're getting in return as a private lender. You know, I'm going to wire you $50,000 for a second lien position while I'm wiring the title company, but I'm giving you $50,000 to do renovations on this house in a second lien position. The only thing I'm getting in return for that is the documents, is the promise to sign. So when people kind of skimp on that documentation, it's like that's literally what you're getting in return for your $50,000 until the loan is repaid. And that could be months, that could be a year, it could be two years. So I always, always, always advocate having an attorney draw up the documentation that's state-specific for where the loan is. The other thing I will tell you about attorneys is do not just go down to your local title company, your local real estate attorney. That's not to say they're bad attorneys, but they are generally not familiar with lending. Because if you think about, you know, your local real estate attorney that did your closing when you bought your house, they are literally emailed the documents from the lender and they just hit print and then they just point to where you need to sign. They did not originate the documents. They didn't write the documents. You know, they're, they might be familiar with what they are, but they might not necessarily know all the intricacies of those documents. So it's really important that you find a real estate attorney that is familiar with lending and not just real estate as a whole. And how do you find that attorney? Networking and community. So there's actually uh, an attorney group that I can recommend that is the Council for the American Association of Private Lenders, AAPL. 
So you can actually join the AAPL. It's a large organization that's kind of an advocacy group for private lenders. They have do kind of have the umbrella that also welcomes hard money lenders, my definition of a hard money lender and private lender. But they are a fantastic resource and they have an, they have an attorney that's there on staff, a, a firm that can work in all 50 states. They have a service where you can just buy into the service, you know, find the documents, type in, you know, what you need, print, there you go. So if you even wanted to prepare your own documents, they have a whole platform, a whole system to do that. I know you said that as a borrower, you're not supposed to ask this question, but I'm not, I'm not a borrower. So can you, (laughs) can you tell me maybe some of the typical terms and interest rates that maybe not you, but you know, in general, the you would charge if you're doing private lending? And also, does it change depending on if you're doing a flip or a buy-hold type of loan? Can you talk about that a little bit? Sure. I would say typical rates for a first lien are going to be anywhere between zero origination points and five origination points. And then the interest rate is going to be anywhere between, I'd say, 8 and maybe 14%. And they're usually very short terms. I'm talking six months, 12 months is usually average. If you have something that's a major renovation or maybe a multifamily that needs to be stabilized for a while, maybe 18 months, there are uh, passive investors that will do a private money mortgage, you know, longer term. So if somebody wants to buy a house, you know, buy a burr, for example, with, with private money and they want to hold that for five, six years, there is a small pool of investors where they just want that monthly, you know, check coming in every month. They don't want to necessarily do the whole churn process and go find new borrowers and vet those deals. And they just, they don't want to do that. If they find someone they know, like, and trust, and they say, hey, I'll give you income for the next five years on this property. They're like, sure, let's do that. But for the most part, it tends to be very short-lived money, similar to what hard money would be. You know, it's very similar terms. I would say there tend to be a lot less fees because like I mentioned, you're talking to the underwriter, you're talking to the processor, you're talking to the person that's wiring the funds. So we don't have that massive overhead where we have to pay an underwriter, we have to pay a processor, we have to do all these things. So it can be cheaper to use private money. But as far as the rates go, I would say the rates are going to be similar. But where you get better or superior product is going to be in the flexibility. So for example, a lot of private lenders can negotiate different terms for each borrower. So if I'm doing a second mortgage for somebody, they took a property subject to, for example, and they need money for the renovation, there's plenty of equity buffer in there, you know, for a second mortgage to be had. So in that case, you know, it's going to be a higher interest rate because I'm in the second lien position. So that's going to be riskier because if something happens, I'm going down with the ship, my capital is going down with the ship. But the other thing that I do is because I only fund fix and flips, anybody who's ever done a fix and flip, will tell you you are hemorrhaging money for the first couple of months while that project's getting up and running. So what I ask the borrower is, okay, if you want to not do payments, because these loans are only out three, four months, very short time frame. If you don't want to do interest only payments, you know, for 12%, you know, that's fine. We can roll it all into the payoff of the loan, but then it's going to be 14%. I have yet to have a borrower turn that down because they would much rather be able to have that capital for the project and the renovation, as opposed to, you know, making yet another monthly payment on on a flip. So you can have that negotiation because it's much more of a collaborative environment. I'm a real estate investor, just like they are a real estate investor. Our goals are aligned. We both want the property renovated. We both want the property fixed. We both want the property sold. You know, there's, there's not some kind of ulterior motive. It's Not like the relationship between like a landlord and a tenant, you know, where the landlord wants to get the maximum amount per rent and, 
you know, the tenant wants to pay next to nothing and get the Taj Mahal. Like you, their goals tend not to be very aligned in those situations. But private lending is the exact opposite. It's almost like having a partner, but that partner is not on title. You know, I like to be involved with my borrowers. You know, I get, you know, updates weekly about progress. You know, I, the couple of borrowers that I work with here now, I just kind of recycle the same money to the, the different borrowers because they are bringing in deals that fit my criteria. And then they're like, okay, you know, once this one's paid off, I'm calling dibs because the next one's coming. Right. So don't, don't put my capital anywhere. So it becomes very set it and forget it when you have that more of a relationship model, because at that point, I don't necessarily need to do the due diligence on the borrower. You know, we've, we've done four or five loans in the past. They've all been successful. He's always been upfront with me. He's always told me if there's problems, like he can just text me an address and say, hey, this is the, this is the property. This is what the closing is. This is what I'm looking at. And I can do, you know, 10, 15 minutes of looking at the property because I'm here locally. And just say yay or nay, you know, or hey, I can do this or no, I can or I can, but here's the stipulations. Um, So it really cuts down on the work when you have more of that relationship model versus a transactional model where you're just talking to a hard money broker and they don't know you from Adam and they need every piece of documentation under the sun. You know, they want you to name their firstborn child after them, you know, all of these things. Yeah, it's it's not fun dealing with uh, with commercial lenders for sure. Now, you mentioned a bunch of terms in there. And I just want to make sure everyone's on the same page. So you mentioned first lien, second lien, second mortgage, points, and subject to. Can you just briefly, just to make sure everyone's on the same page here, just kind of define those terms? So lien position is the priority upon which you are going to get paid if that property forecloses. So that's kind of the quick and dirty way to think about it. So somebody that has a first mortgage, so when you go to buy your home, you know, Bank of America, for example, goes and gives you money for that mortgage to buy that house, they are in the first lien position. They are the first mortgage. Now, if you have lived there a few years, you've gotten some equity, now you want to take out a HELOC on that property, put in a pool, whatever you're doing, that's you go to your local credit union. So your local credit union issues you a home equity line of credit. Your first mortgage is still in place. They are then issuing a second mortgage. So they are a second lien holder. So if for some reason you stop paying your first mortgage, their first mortgage holder can foreclose on the property and then above and beyond anything that they're going to charge for late fees, interest charges, you know, the, the legal fees, the legal side, they're going to lump that all into their total payoff. And a lot of times that ends up getting the second lien holder nothing in return because all of those interest charges, the legal charges, you know, all of that adds up adding up very, very quickly. So it tends to be a riskier position. As far as subject to, that means that an investor, someone has taken over the property and they have agreed to keep paying the mortgage for the person that sold them the property. So they're leaving that mortgage in place and then they are just continuing to pay that mortgage as if they were that borrower. They just keep that financing in place. Okay. And the last one was the points on a loan. And that's just the extra that is an annual annualized, right? So if you say I want two points on a deal and you're loaning someone a hundred grand, that means regardless of the deal, you're going to pay them two thousand dollars when they pay off the loan. Is that correct? Points can be paid usually at the time of origination. So when you go to the closing table to actually purchase this property, you're, if the borrower is getting charged points, the borrower will bring that capital to closing or that amount will be deducted from the amount wired over to the title company, depending on how they want to handle the cash flow aspect of it. But the end result, the net result is the same, that they're being charged 2% 
of the loan amount. So anytime anybody says anything about points, it tends to be a percentage of something. So in this case, two, two origination points is 2% of the loan amount. Another question for Travis Smith, the founder of TribeVest. Travis, I often talk about group investing and how it can ease someone into passive investing because they're investing with other people. Can you talk about the power of groups and how TribeVest can help new investors get started in syndication investing? I love this question because it reminds me of why we started TribeVest. My brothers and I saw real estate as a way to hack wealth without having to give up our day jobs. And despite not having any real estate investment experience, we found confidence as a tribe and that we'd be making decisions together. We were up for the adventure. We valued the idea of learning and growing together. But we had a more obvious problem than lack of experience. We lacked capital. We had good incomes, but didn't have the lump sums of money to break into syndicate investing. We each committed to contributing $500 monthly. And that was our breakthrough. As a tribe, the capital added up fast. And it wasn't long before we had our first experience in true wealth building. We were now part owners of a physician's office building in beautiful Pasadena, California. And we've been building wealth ever since. So yes, TribeVest is a great tool for people to ease into passive investing because it makes it so easy. And it helps you take the most important step. The first one, if you start pulling capital, the deals will come. Jim, we realized that if our tribe could do it, any tribe could. By forming and funding our investor tribe, we secured a future we could have never imagined. It really did change our lives. So the last thing I guess I want to talk, I know we've talked mostly about lending, because it's just, it's fascinating to me. I do a little bit of private lending and I'd, I'd like to do more. So how do you screen your operators? Like the couple of loans that I've done are with people I know very well. I know that they do a lot in the market I'm in, which is Columbus, Ohio. They're very good at it. They know way more than I do. So I, and I trust them. But how do I find those people if, if I don't know them already? And I know it's networking is, is a good place to start, but how do you really do it? And then how do you vet them and make sure that they're someone you want to work with? First off, if I have someone that I see in my local market that is really active in the type of loans that I or types of properties that I want to loan on. So, you know, I only loan on fix and flips in certain areas that have these metrics. So if I, I come across an investor that, you know, does those things or maybe they're new to the area, they've not done it in Hampton Roads, but they've done it in another market. But now they live here. I can start a conversation or they will start a conversation. And it really starts with a conversation. It's nothing official. It's not like they're filling out a loan application or anything like that. But once we kind of get an idea, we have a, a conversation, you know, like, what is their experience? What are they looking for? What types of projects are they taking down? You know, how successful have they been at them? Are they working with any other partners? You know, all of those kind of conversations. The other thing that I will personally do is I will ask them for three professional references. So I want to talk to three people who have done business with them as an investor. I don't care if that's the broker they bought the property through, you know, the general contractor that they use for all their fix and flips, other partners, past partners, whatever that happens to be. I'm going to reach out to those people. And then I'm going to ask those people for someone else that they know has done business with the borrower. And I'm going to call what I, that I call it my second ring. I'm going to call that second ring of people 
and try and you know basically flesh out you know what was their interaction with them was it positive you know how did how did what happened when you hit a roadblock on this fix and flip so it's really about talking to people for me obviously we're going to go and make sure we're going to go and look in public records so if you say you've done 12 fix and flips you know in the last year great let me have those addresses and let me look up and make sure that you are on title or your LLC is on title if you're going to be purchasing this through an LLC and need to see some documentation to show who all the players are in that LLC. And they are also going to be signing on the dotted line for this loan because they are partners in that LLC, if that makes sense. So some of the documentation requirements are very similar to hard money, not necessarily as thorough in most cases. Most private lenders don't pull credit, for example, which just there's there's no real need, especially after we've done two, three, four loans together. It's like, yeah, I don't care. You know, I don't even need updated bank statements. We've been successful in the past. This deal makes sense. Let's move forward. Let's say I'm somebody new who has who has a pile of cash, maybe, and I want to do some private lending. I understand I could go network and find the people, but how do I get? How do I know what my criteria are? I know you're local to that market. You know that market. You know where you want what kind of property. So how do you recommend somebody new to it to try to get into it? I would say think about what your goals are for this investment. So, for example, if you are someone that you want just kind of that steady, set it and forget it cash flow. Then you could say, all right, you know, I'll do loans for a longer period of time. You know, let's do two points up front. You can have the money for 18 months. Maybe they're going to burr it and they need some seasoning requirements before the conventional side will go and fund, you know, refinance them out of your hard money loan or your personal private loan. So if that's something that sounds appealing, you don't want to have to keep doing the churn and burn and due diligence with different borrowers. You want something that's a little longer. At that point, you're probably going to be funding something that's going to be a rental. So at that point, you start working backwards and you're like, okay, what sort of rentals would I be comfortable potentially owning if this defaults? And you're, you know, you just keep going, okay, yeah, I like this part of the town. I don't like that part of town. I don't want a property in Georgia. I don't mind a property in Indianapolis. You know, you just keep going, this is what I know. So this is where I'm going to go. That can also be dictated by the amount of capital you have to deploy. So for example, if you live in Southern California, you are not going to buy anything in Southern California for about $800,000. You know, it's just, that's just the way it is. But if you're a private lender that has $200,000 to work with, chances are you are not going to fund a long-term rental in Southern California with $200,000. So you are somewhat kind of, that can also kind of help limit, I don't want to say limit your options, but narrow down your options. Because obviously you're going to want to go somewhere that if you are adamant about being in the first lien position, you don't want to be in second lien under any circumstances, then you are going to have to find a market that you are comfortable investing in where $200,000 can be a first lien position. So that's another thing to kind of think about as well. Okay. So I know there's a lot more to talk about with private lending, but I do want to touch on a couple other things. And, And one of the things you said at the beginning was, you know, you did a flip, you did the landlord thing, same as I did. You wish you kind of wish you hadn't. And, you know, I'm, I learned some stuff, so I'm kind of in the same boat. You know, we talk in our group about shortcuts, how you get people somewhere so they don't have to go through what you might have gone through. So how do you do that? How do you get people to skip the beginning? Let's skip the, the being a landlord. Let's skip the doing a flip and let's go right to private lending or let's go right to investing in syndications. How do you, how do you help people shortcut the process? I ask them what their goals are. And if you, really listen to what they're saying. You know, most people will say, oh, you know, I want to be a real estate investor because I want financial independence. I want passive income. You know, when in reality, what they tend to want is some level of time freedom or geographical freedom. 
And so when you sit there and have a conversation with them and say, oh, you know, I want to do it. I want to do this. So, you know, I can leave my W-2 and then do what I want when I want. Okay, that's great. But I'm telling you right now, managing fix and flip projects, you're going to be running to Home Depot eight times a day in between different properties, yelling at contractors. That's just, that's going to be your reality. And then when you tell them that, they're like, oh, that doesn't sound like fun at all. Like, you know, I, I, I don't want to do that. I'm like, okay, that's what fixing what you're asking for. That's what you're going to get. And they're like, okay. And I think some of that mentality comes from, like I mentioned, the other options aren't presented to what I would consider, you know, frontline new investors. That's the only two things they see because that's what's on television. I hate to, I hate to break down the American culture that way, but that's what's on TV. They're never going to make a show about private lending because all we're doing is looking at spreadsheets and signing documentation. It's not sexy enough. So right. it's, it's up to us as, to be advocates for this style of investing. But it really, really depends on what their goals are. You know, if I have someone that doesn't have a ton of capital, but, you know, they come from a long line of contractors and professional finishers or tilers or whatever, and they want to start building up capital, they want that, you know, cash, that, that cash pile. Okay, yeah, fix and flip might be the way to go because you have the knowledge base, you have the connections within the industry, you don't have a lot of capital necessarily to work with, so you could bring on a JV partner for the capital component. That makes a lot more sense because that's their goal. But again, if I have someone that what I'm hearing when I have a conversation with them sounds more like they want the time freedom or geographical freedom, then it's like, okay, let's pump the brakes for a second and let's make you realize what you're asking for and the path you're going down are not going to get you to where you want to go. And earlier, you also mentioned more inclusion of women in investing. And, and that is something that I wish our group was more represented by women. And we're working on that. Can you talk a little bit about that? Like, how are you getting women more involved in, in investing, passive investing, both in the lending and the syndications? Absolutely. And it really boils down to selling the benefits and the time that's involved. So if you think of a lot of new investors might start with wholesaling, for example. So, you know, they're putting out the bandit signs, they got their cell phone plastered all over, we buy ugly houses kind of thing. They're not going to be in a position where they're going to pick up the phone at 8 p.m. when they're trying to clean up from dinner to talk to some distressed seller about, hey, you know, I, I got your flyer in the mail, your postcard in the mail. I want to know what you're going to do for me. You know, they're just not going to be able to drop everything and meet a seller over to property and walk through and give them an offer. And that just that, like I mentioned earlier, that's a whole nother job. That's not something a lot of women are in a position where they can can take that on. And women, unfortunately, end up in this kind of perfect storm for financial ruin because they usually end up bearing the vast majority of the time for childcare and sometimes the cost for childcare. And as everybody knows, there's that income gap problem that's been a thing for a very long time that's still there. So when you multiply that income gap over the working lifetime of an individual, it becomes a wealth canyon because we have higher expenses. We tend to live longer. We go to the doctor more frequently. I know I've been married for 20 years. My spouse will not go to the doctor unless he's about to die. So we live longer. We tend to outlive our spouses. We tend not to have the big high power career. So we're not going to have that you know, for, big 401k or self-directed IRA to fall back on in our retirement years. If our spouse has passed away, you know, maybe we get some SSI benefits from them. We are spending the vast majority of time, you know, our free, quote unquote, free time with, you know, childcare and making sure they got everything they need for homework or we're dealing with the house. And it's just, it ends up creating this perfect storm where their attention has been raising their family, not on being the CFO of their family. So when you introduce something like private lending or passive investing, 
you can say, look, it's pretty, you know, front loaded. You'd spend a couple hours doing the due diligence on this new borrower, meeting them, looking at the property, get comfortable with the idea, ask more questions, ask for more documentation. But once you've wired the funds, it's pretty much done. You know, you're just getting whatever kind of communication updates you've requested, whether it's weekly, monthly, and then you just get the check sent to you however you requested the check gets sent to you for your interest-only payments every month. So I think that really resonates with women because they're able to just kind of sit down, have some focused thoughts for a couple of hours, say yay or nay, they're going to pull the trigger, they're going to do this loan. And then at that point, they can go back to the circus they're currently living in, but they're still able to earn some additional income. They're still investing in real estate. They're still learning about that market. You know, like you mentioned, you're as an active investor, I think that helps passive investors because they've done that. They, they're familiar with the language. They know how to analyze the deals. So I wouldn't say it's a waste of time, but it's definitely something where I'm like, no, nah, I don't want to do that full time. So I think from that component, women really, it really resonates with women that this is something that I can do. I can squeeze it into my life without a massive time commitment. It's secured by an asset. So it's not like I'm just giving someone $50,000. You know, It's secured by an asset. So if something goes wrong, I have some means to get that capital back. So they tend to like that safety component. So I mean, it just, I think overall speaks really well to women, especially. Yeah. And I think part of the challenge of this, both the, the syndication investing I do, the private lending, you know, we both do, and I know you do syndication investing also, is that no one knows what it is, right? No one's ever heard of this. They, Like you said, it flip, fix and flips on TV, so they understand that. But just part of the mission of Left Field Investors is to expose people to, hey, you know what? There's other ways to make money that aren't just flipping a house or putting your money into the stock market. There's ways to create wealth and financial freedom and fin- f- time freedom, all that good stuff. And it's like you said, you put a couple hours in and then you just let your money work for you. Part of the challenge at left field investors, and I'm sure you have the same, is just trying to get new people into it, right? To say, hey, look, there, there's other options. Just look around a little bit. I know you have uh, private lending lessons as your Facebook group. Can you talk a little bit about that, what that is, and, and how people can participate? Yes. So that group is, was a total accident. It started <laughs> because I could not find other people during COVID to talk to about private lending. I mean, I'm a part of landlord groups. I'm a part of Burr groups. I'm a part of these various syndication groups on Facebook. So when COVID happened and the extrovert in me was stuck inside with a spouse that says like 10 words at once, he's a chatty Cathy. So I went looking for community. I'm very big on community. And every group I joined was a place for scams and spam. If they had private lending or hard money lending in their title, there was nothing education. There was nothing networking based. Even bigger pockets, you know, going to look for resources on bigger pockets, they have books about how to buy an apartment building in 30 days and how to vet out your scope of work and price it out. But the only time private lending was even mentioned was go find a private lender to fund your deals. And it's like, okay, and where are all those people now? And I joke around that private lenders are like the champions of hide and go seek because, like, we take that private thing very seriously, because we're not going to come out of the woodwork, because when we do, if we publicly post that we do this, you get inundated with just requests and business ventures, and it's just like, no, I only fund fix and flips in Hampton Roads, please stop sending me this stuff. So we're not going to come publicly forward most, most times and say, hey, we have capital to deploy, you know, who's got something, because it just, it's never a good ending there. So I was like, all right, you know, somebody said, why don't you just start a group? And I'm like, I'm a chemistry professor. What do I know about starting a group? You know, and they're like, just do it. I'm like, all right, fine. And then like a week later, 100 people, I was like, oh, crap. Now I got to do something with this. 
And now, you know, it's, it's almost a year old now. It'll be a year old in about a month. And there's like 4,200 people in there. And I'm like, this wow. is a thing. So what we do, we have monthly networking events. So you can actually be in a same, in a virtual room with other private lenders and talk, basically talk shop. Like that doesn't, that's not usually an ability to be freely done. The other thing we do is we do weekly educational events about some aspect of private lending or passive investing. So we will bring like an operator on for syndications and then ask them, they'll talk about some particular aspect. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, we had someone that does commercial insurance for apartment complexes because any operator in their pitch deck, I watch a lot of pitch decks, they don't talk about the insurance like ever. The word insurance probably never comes out of their mouth during the pitch deck, but the type of insurance they have can severely affect the returns you get as a passive investor. And most people don't know that because it doesn't brought up in the pitch deck. So nobody's asking, hey, did you get you know, loss of income? Do you have a blanket policy? Like none of those questions are being asked and not a lot of information is out there about, hey, what can actually affect my return as an LP investor? It's not just occupancy going down. There's myriads of things. So in the private lending lessons group, we bring in these kind of subject matter experts like you know, the insurance person to talk about, hey, if they have this type of policy, this could potentially negatively affect your returns. Whereas if they had this type of policy, yeah, it might be a little more expensive as far as a premium, but on the, if something happens, they're covered from a lawsuit, they're covered from a fire, they're covered, they're covered, they're covered. Um, so I think it's just been an avenue, a great avenue for passive investors to be able to come together kind of on neutral ground and just talk about, you know, what should they know? What questions should they be asking? What should they be doing if they're doing private lending? You know, what are the important pieces of paper that they need doing private lending, all of these various things. And then originally the thought process behind the group was we are going to only kind of allow passive investors or private lenders in the group. But the more active investors I talked to routinely, the same kind of message I was hearing was they don't know how to use private money. I mean, literally I would get multiple messages a day. Hey, what's your rates? What's your rates? What's your rates? I'm like, it doesn't work like that. Please stop asking me that. <laughs> So we opened the group up to active investors and the active investors actually have met private lenders through the group. You know, they're in there, they're engaging, they're having conversations, they're showing up to events, they're asking questions. I know people that have met business partners in this group. I know people that have met private lenders and sources of funding in this group. And it's just been like, it's taken on a life of its own. You know, since you, you, you also run a group, it's really become its, its own little monster. <laughs> yeah. I'm, and I love that. I mean, I thoroughly, that was never the goal when it was originally started, but that's what it's morphed into. And I love it. Well, that's fantastic. I mean, I, I admire that. It's just uh, creating a community and then being able to grow it to over 4,000 people in one year is is just incredible. I've started a couple of different communities. And the reason I did it is because it was selfish. I was looking for people to talk to about right. what I was doing. You know, now Left Field Investors started that because I wanted to talk to people about passively investing in syndications. And it's grown beyond what I thought it would. And, you know, like I said, I just congratulations on, on that community. That is that is fantastic. So you mentioned the um, passive investing in syndication. So I know you're also affiliated with Mission First Capital. And we need to close up here in a minute. But I really want to hear um, if you wouldn't mind explaining what Mission First Capital is and, and how people can participate in that. Yes. So Mission First Capital is a real estate fund. And that runs very similar to the way a syndication runs for your investors that are used to that syndication model. But what a fund does is it allows you to publicly advertise like a 506C, but you don't have to worry about whether someone's a sophisticated investor, accredited investor, 
And since you don't have to worry about that limitation, we don't have a limitation on the number of investors that can be invested in any particular fund. So you can actually set the minimum to whatever you want. So for Mission First Capital, for our first fund, the minimum is $5,000 as opposed to $50,000. And the reason this came about, going back to community, is everybody that's involved with Mission First Capital is either a veteran, active duty service member, or a military spouse. So our community, when we were doing syndication during COVID in 2020, our community was obviously very heavily based in the military, veterans, active duty service members, other military spouses. But when you go and tell those people, yeah, we have this great deal, this is all the wonderful benefits of investing in multifamily, investing through a syndication and all these other things, the the kind of the normal tribe mentality that you hear around multifamily investing, then you go and tell them, you drop the bomb on them that, you know, the minimum is $50,000 and active duty service members don't have $50,000 generally just laying around. I mean, it's just, If you think about, you know, most active duty service members are between the ages of 18 and 35, they haven't really, they're still kind of not quite yet to their prime earning years. They're still ramping up their income. They're still ramping up their investments. So to kind of sell them on this great idea, this great investment, but then go and say, oh, well, you know what? The SEC says you don't know enough about your own money. We'll give you a gun, but we won't, we won't let you invest your own money. So that's, that's a no, no. So we just kind of, again, working backwards, you go, okay. If this is the community we want to serve, this is the community we're a part of, how do we do that? How do we build something that allows our community to invest in multifamily real estate like a syndication, get all the benefits of syndication, but we don't have to drop that $50,000 bomb on them at the last time, you know, last little pitch there. And so a regulation A plus fund was the solution. It's a very time consuming process. It's a very expensive process. When you have that mission for community in the back of your mind, like every meeting where you're like, oh, we have this setback. All right, fine. You know, let's go. Let's make it forward because our goal is bigger than just us. Our goal is bigger than just acquiring multifamily assets. Our goal is to get more active duty and veteran and military spouses involved in real estate just to kind of peak that mindset. You know, $5,000 isn't going to change their financial life. But at that point, they become real estate investors. They are invested in real estate in some capacity. They're going to get statements. They're going to get updates. And it starts to think, make them think, what else can I do? And that's where the change happens. And that's what the purpose was. That's fantastic. And there's so much, so much overlap, I think, between what, what we're doing, because, you know, we also battle the 25, 50 and a hundred thousand dollar minimums because, you know, part of the people we're trying to get in are just regular middle-class people, right? who work a W-2 and they also don't have necessarily 50 grand to put down. And the way we've been doing it is through a company called TribeVest, which allows um, people to invest together in small groups. And so we've gotten that down to where there's a group I'm in that we put $100 in a month. And, uh, you know, after about 18 months, we had enough to buy our first syndication. And this is a group of people that they've, you know, the only real estate they've ever owned was maybe their house. They never would have gotten into real estate. And like you said, this one syndication investment is not going to make any of them rich, but it's going to give them exposure and understand, oh, the syndication thing isn't something out there. And then next time, maybe they'll take their five grand and go to Mission First Capital. I assume it's open to all investors, not just military. Yes, it's open to the public. Awesome. Well, that's fantastic. Um, Our last question here is if you can tell us or share with us one or two podcasts that you really enjoy listening to. Oh, there's so many. The first one I would think of to, off the top of my head that would be relevant to your guests would be Cashflow Ninja, MC Lauscher's Cashflow Ninja. And then my absolute favorite is Capital Hacking with Josh McCallan, Eric Cabral. 
absolutely love those guys. Everything they're doing is just, it's amazing. I mean, there's just the mentality, their community, everything like that. There's a multifamily podcast called The Multifamily Experiment with Heath and Hutch. They're operators in the Southeast that I think they just bring on a lot of their ability to kind of work with each other, their partnership tends to be, for me personally, um, their partnership and their ability to have these conversations as partners, the difficult conversations, the easy conversations. I think their operating system really speaks to how well a partnership can work and help you scale your business as opposed to, hey, you just found some random, random individual that also is doing multifamily investing. Why don't we partner up? You know, They really went through this process of getting to know each other. And their podcast is really great because you see their differences in personality and thought process, but they both still have the same goal, which is what I really appreciate about their podcast. That's good. I'm going to have to check that one out. I I knew the first two are on my podcast player, but I'll definitely check out the third one. And, you know, usually I try to keep this to 30 minutes, but this information was so fantastic. (laughs) So thank you so much. I think we're going to have to get you on again and, and kind of tackle the stuff that we didn't get to. But as I said, this was great. We really appreciate it. Can you tell us how people can get in touch with you and also maybe the uh, how they could get in touch with your Facebook group and Mission First Capital? Sure. So the Facebook group is just called Private Lending Lessons. You can search for it on Facebook. I'm on LinkedIn. My URL is invest passively to live actively because that is my personal mantra that I make all opportunities go through. And then you can reach out to me on LinkedIn, send me a message, send me a connection request. You know, I'm happy to talk to people because again, I'm very much about being an advocate for private lending and passive investing. I think it's a 100% a viable way to be an investor in real estate. Excellent. And Mission First Capital? Mission First Capital is just missionfirstcapital.co. And they can go on there and learn anything they want to know about Mission First Capital. And there's a contact us button on there and you can go ahead and contact us. And we're happy to reach out via email, phone call, text, everything. Okay, well, I will put all of that in the show notes. And again, thank you very much. This was fantastic. We appreciate you being with us. Yes, thank you, Jim. Thanks for having me. What a great conversation with Alex. You know, in any other industry, I think we would be competitors and wouldn't be trying to help each other. But her groups are into education and networking and helping people get into passive investing, just like Left Field Investors is. And and that's one of the things I really like about real estate is people working together, just trying to help each other make some money and and build wealth for their families. And that's what Alex is doing. And she does a great job at it. She's all about private lending, um, or at least this podcast was. She certainly does plenty of other things, but we were focusing on private lending. And I really liked some of the things she was talking about. One, you know, match your lifestyle and skill set to how you want to invest. And that's just seems like common sense, but it's really brilliant because everyone like me, starts out trying to flip, trying to be active. And and if you can just find where your lifestyle, how you want to live and and what you're good at and find some investments or a way to invest that will help you achieve your lifestyle goals and match your skill sets, wow, you become so much more effective. That's not an easy thing to do, but I think just recognizing that that's the goal, that's super powerful there. So I, I really liked how she talked about that networking. Every podcast I seem to talk to people and they say networking is what you need to do to find success. And that's how she got her start in lending. And she found a way to passively invest, even though she is, she said she's a military spouse moving every year or more. And private lending was a perfect way for her to focus and find a way to passively invest. I used to always get confused between private money and hard money. And I'm not an active investor anymore. 
but I am a private lender. So I liked how she described it. Private lending is more for individuals who are controlling the money. They're the people that say yes or no to the loan and define the terms. Where hard money is a little bit more institutional and you're not really talking to the decision maker. So you can't negotiate as well with the terms and, and things like that. So I thought that was an interesting definition that she did. And then finally, mission first capital. I love that, helping military veterans and currently serving military people get into passive investing, understand what it is, and actually giving them an entry point of $5,000 for the minimums. And that's fantastic. It's similar to how we use TribeVest. We lower the minimums. She's doing the same thing in a different way through her group, Mission First Capital. So again, excellent conversation with her. Definitely gonna have her on the podcast again because there's a lot of things we did not address because we were so focused on private lending. Lots more to talk about, so you'll definitely be hearing about Alex on this podcast again. Thanks for hanging out in left field with us today. If you're interested in becoming a left fielder, you can find us on the World Wide Web at www.leftfieldinvestors.com or you can send me an email, jim at leftfieldinvestors.com. Thank you for listening to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast. If you enjoy the show, please go to Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and rate and review the show. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Nothing said on the show should be considered financial advice. Before making any decisions, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by Passive Investing from Left Field and Left Field Investors. Written permissions must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting. <laughs>